0: Are listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Brampton, Ontario? For more information about our church, please visit harvestbrampton.ca. Amen. Amen. Let's bow our heads together. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus Christ and we come by your Holy Spirit, Lord, and we come like the people. In Psalm 126, who said, When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. When our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy, the Lord has done great things for them, the nation said. The Lord has done great things for us, and we are glad. Those who sow in tears shall reap shouts of joy, He goes out weeping, bearing seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing sheaves with him. The Lord has done great things for us, and we are glad. Lord, we stand amazed at your goodness and your faithfulness, Lord. We stand in wonder and in awe. And Heavenly Father, we pray right now in the name of Jesus Christ that you would meet with us in the proclamation of your word. Father, I pray as I have often prayed, Lord, that that even though it may be me speaking, that it may be me reading, that, that your voice would be the voice that is heard through your word for your glory. If you agree, say amen. Amen. Well open up your Bibles to Psalm chapter uh, 84. Psalm chapter 84. If you don't have a Bible uh, with you today, our ushers are coming up and down the aisle right now to, uh, to help you with that. If you don't own a Bible, this is our gift to you. If you just left yours at home, uh, then you can just leave it on the table on your way out. I uh, hear these words uh, from C.S. Lewis. You may have noticed that the books you read and really love are bound together by a secret thread. You know very well what is the common quality that makes you love them, though you cannot put it into words. Again, you've stood before some landscape which seems to embody what you have been longing for all your life. All the things that have ever deeply possessed your soul have been but hints of it. Tantalizing glimpses, promises never quite fulfilled, echoes that die away just as they caught your ear but if it should ever really become come manifest, if there ever came an echo that did not die away, but, but swelled into the sound itself, you would know it. Beyond all possibility of doubt, you would say, here at last is the thing I was made for. It is the secret Signature of each soul, the incommunicable and unappeasable want, the thing we desired before we met our wives or made our friends or chose our work and which we shall still desire on our deathbeds when the mind no longer knows wife or friend or work. All your life an unattainable ecstasy has hovered just beyond the grasp of your consciousness. Longing desire, something that is unattainable, uh, unappeasable, something that dwells inside every human soul, something that is hardwired into every human heart. We all have this longing. We long for something greater, something better. You know, we long for the good old days. We long for cassette tapes, and the memory of having to rewind and fast forward and flip it over to listen to song two. And so we long for the, for the past, but then we also long for progress. We hold a cassette tape in our hand, it's the same size of an iPhone, and we're frustrated that Spotify won't load faster. So which, which way do we want it? We long for the past, but we long for progress. We seek this better future. Some of us long to be with a certain person who is far from us. Some of us long to be back in a certain place or you've come to this place, to this nation because there was a longing in your soul. The Bible tells us and Psalm 84 specifically tells us that that longing that all of us feel can only be fulfilled, can only be satisfied in one place and that is in the presence of the God who created you and made you. I first encountered the satisfaction for that longing when I was six years old at a summer camp. Maybe it happened for you in a church service like this. Maybe it was in a gymnasium somewhere, I don't know, on Queen Street in Brampton. Maybe, maybe it happened at a, a Billy Graham rally or, or something to that end. But if you are here today then, and, and you have experienced that satisfaction, then you know this truth that we're going to discover today from Psalm 84. That only a relationship with our Creator... Only a relationship with our king can satisfy that longing that is deep within all of us. So let's take a look together at Psalm 84. Psalm 84, it begins by saying to the choir master according to the Gittith, a psalm of the sons of Korah. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, and whose heart are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. O Lord, God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents Of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. Before we get into studying this, this psalm together, I want to uh, deal with a couple of uh, introductory notes. I want to begin with the introductory notes of the psalm. It says that it was, a, it was a written to the choir master according to the gittith. The gittith was probably a melody or a tune that was familiar. So these lyrics were written to be sung to a specific tune. And it was also written by or for a group called the Sons of Korah. Uh, Now, the sons of Korah were were told about them in 1 Chronicles chapter 9, verse 19. Let me show you this on the screen. The Korahites, or the sons of Korah, were in charge of the work of the service, keepers of the thresholds of the tent, as their fathers had been in charge of the camp of the Lord, keepers of the entrance. So the Korahites, the sons of Korah, were Levites, which means they ministered around the tabernacle and later the temple. And their job was to be keepers of the entrance. Hence, in verse 10, it says, I'd rather be a doorkeeper. They are the doorkeepers. They were the ones who stood guard at the temple. That was their role and their responsibility. But they had a real sincere passion and heart to worship the Lord. They didn't just do their job as a duty. One of my favorite stories in 2 Chronicles chapter 20. This is when King Jehoshaphat suddenly learns that the Moabites and the Ammonites have teamed up and they're marching on Judah and they're already at En They're in the southern border. And, and Jehoshaphat prays that amazing prayer. We don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. And they hold a prayer and worship service. And it says, then Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell down before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. And the Levites... Of the Kohathites and the Korahites, the sons of Korah, stood up to praise the Lord, the God of Israel, with a very loud voice. And so these people, the sons of Korah, were doorkeepers, but they were also worshippers. And as that story unfolds, when Jehoshaphat is sending out the army to go and fight against the Moabites and the Ammonites, he doesn't send the soldiers first, he sends the singers And no doubt, the the, the Korahites, the sons of Korah, would have been among them. You can also notice that in this psalm, you have the the Hebrew transliterated word selah at the end of of verse 4 and at the end of verse 8. The the Hebrew word selah simply means to lift up. And so it could mean to lift up your voice in a key change. Or it could be, you know, lift your hands from off your instrument like a music, like a rest, to, to lift up, to, to, to pause. And so those two Salas divide this psalm into three clear uh, stanzas, and each stanza has a key word, the word blessed. At the end of the first stanza, verse 4, blessed are those who dwell in your house. At the beginning of the second stanza, in verse 5, blessed are those whose strength is in you. And then at the end of verse 12, O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. So we've got three stanzas in front of us, and we're going to see three character traits, three distinctions that belong to a person who has found that satisfaction to the deepest longing in their soul in a relationship with God. So verse 1 says, How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts! My soul longs, yes, faints, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Here's the first trait. Longing for God's presence. Longing for God's presence. Now, for some of you already, you're thinking, well, that's just counterintuitive. That doesn't actually, that's incongruent. You just said that the person who, who has found the answer to their longing, the first thing about them that we need to know is that they're still longing. It, it does seem a little bit backwards. It, it 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 does seem sort of like a circular argument that the person who's had their longing satisfied is still longing. But C.S. Lewis also famously said that our greatest havings are our wantings. The greatest thing that we could ever possess is to have a desire to possess something more. And when we're talking about a relationship with God, we are talking about having a relationship with an infinite being. And so even when you first meet him, it feels as though every longing has been satisfied. There's still more to long for. The deeper and deeper we go in our relationship with him, the more we long. The more we have, the more we long for him. The more we satis- are satisfied, the more we faint, the more we yearn, the more we cry out. Verse 1 says, how lovely is your dwelling place. Now, I'm not talking about FIFA World Cup lovely. I'm not talking about the announcers on the FIFA World Cup. All the, Why are they all British? I don't, I don't understand that. But whenever someone crosses it into the middle, they always say, oh, what a lovely ball. Right? In, in that it was, it was nice. It, it, was, it was well done. He's not, he's not saying that the courts of the Lord are lovely. No. He's saying, I love I love the courts of the Lord. I love to be in God's presence. He says, my soul longs, that, that inner cry for the courts of the Lord. There is a desperation, there is a determined desire to be in God's presence. You see, all of us, all of us were designed to be in the presence of God. You see, each and every one of us have, has a has a has a born-in homesickness for the Garden of Eden. That place that we're longing for, maybe you moved to this area trying to find it here, trust me, it's not here. That that place back home where you feel like, if I could just get back there somehow, that that nostalgic feeling of returning to the past, listen, we all want to return to the past, but it's further than your childhood. It goes back centuries and centuries to that paradise, That garden where God first placed our original ancestors, Adam and Eve. And deep inside of all of our spiritual DNA, there is this longing to go back to Eden. Back to the perfection, the beauty that was once there. And so we all have this homesickness for Eden, this longing to be in the presence of God. And we not only have a homesickness for Eden, but those of us who have trusted in Jesus Christ, there's a homesickness for heaven. There's the desire to go to that ultimate place of paradise where we can be with him forever. He says my, in verse 2, My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy, inside and outside, all my being, on the, on the spiritual level, on the emotional level, and on the physical level, heart and flesh, I sing for joy. St. Augustine said, God, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. You see, all of us have that longing inside of us because the God who created us designed us to have that longing. He put that longing inside each and every one of us so that we would long for Him and look to Him and ultimately be satisfied in a relationship with Him. Verse 3 says Even the sparrow finds a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young. At your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. You know, birds, they can, they can build a nest just about anywhere. Check, the, check this out. Uh, you are being watched. <laughs> or uh, look at this, look at this uh, next one. You know, that's a pretty effective decoy. <laughs> Someone left their car for three or four days in a parking lot, and, uh, and then there was a nest on their rear windshield wiper blade. And uh, make sure that if you're not golfing regularly, make sure you keep your golf shoes uh, inside, and then this bird found a nice place to stop and, uh, and settle down. You know, birds can build nests just about, uh, just about anywhere. And uh, here the psalmist is reflecting on just the desire. If I could just be like a bird, if I could just get into the presence of God, if I could just fly over to the temple, hey, while I'm flying over there, why don't I just set up a little nest there? I, I would just love to be in the presence of God. I'm just longing. To be close to him. And so the psalmist is envying these birds. Envying these these tiny little creatures because of the speed with which they could get to the courts of the Lord. And notice how he says at the end of verse 3, my king and my God. You see, the psalmist has a personal relationship. Not just, he's not just talking about God in general or spirituality in some sort of vague, nebulous term. No, he's saying, This is my God, and He is my King. He's not just impersonally ruling over the universe. I know Him, He is mine. And, loved ones, when you talk about longing, isn't this the deepest longing that all of us have? To love and to be loved. I mean, that's about as existential as it can get. That is what we want more than anything. And that's what can only be found, that true acceptance, that true love to be fully known and still fully loved by God as our king and our God. And then in verse 4 he says, Blessed are those who dwell in your house ever singing your praise. Isn't that a great picture? You know, those people that live in the temple permanently, you know, that are just always singing God's praise. Isn't that a great picture that he's describing? Those who dwell in God's house. The only problem with that picture is there's no such people. There there, there aren't any bunk beds or hammocks or mattresses in the temple. No one dwells there. And so the psalmist here is, is dreaming this fictitious, this invented vision of blessed are those people and I want to be one who like a bird can just set up a nest and dwell in the courts of the Lord who can live in his presence 24 7 those people don't exist apart from Jesus Christ who tore the veil of the temple and made a way who was that ultimate sacrifice for us so that we can dwell in the presence of God for He has made that possible. And when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing his praise than when we first begun. The end of verse 4 says, Ever singing your praise. Uh, Here at Harvest, we take singing very seriously. And we want people to put their heart, their soul, their flesh into a passionate expression of the glory of God. Because we will spend all of our days, all of eternity, singing God's praise in God's presence. And we have the privilege of doing that together as a church, a family. Then verse 4 ends with a selah. With a rest, with a pause, with a lifting up. And then begins the next stanza, verse 5, blessed are those whose strength is in you and whose heart are the highways to Zion. Here's the second characteristic of someone who's had their soul satisfied by the living God. They are people who are relying on God's strength, people who are relying on God's strength. Blessed are those whose strength is in you and whose heart are the highways Zion. The NIV translates it, in whose heart there is a pilgrimage, or their heart is set on pilgrimage. Three times a year, the people of Israel would, would journey together to Jerusalem, the central place of worship where the temple was. Uh, the, the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of, of Passover, and the Feast of Pentecost. They would be on pilgrimage. But the psalmist here is saying Not just a blessing for those who do a pilgrimage with their feet. But blessed are those who have a pilgrimage. Who have the highways that lead to the temple in their heart. Blessed are the people who understand that their whole life is a journey. A journey to the presence of God. And that's what he is describing here. The journey is not always easy. In the next verse, verse 6, it says, As they go through the valley of Baca... Abaka means weeping. And if you have decided to follow Jesus, then you have decided to follow him into seasons of suffering that he will lead you to and he will lead you through. That's what we signed up for as followers of Jesus Christ. Not that our life is necessarily easy, but definitely better, even in the midst of suffering, even in the midst of that valley of Baka, that valley of weeping or of tears. But pay close attention to how the psalmist describes the journey through the Valley of Tears. Notice how it says, as you go through the Valley of Baca, you don't go to there, it's not a destination, you're not staying over there, don't set up camp, you're going through it. It's a a process and there is progress, you will get out of there. So you need to understand that you're not staying there, you also need to understand that that place is not staying that way. It says, as they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. If you have the highways of Zion in your heart, if you are living your life like it is a journey, knowing that God is in control and that he's leading you, and that one day he will lead you through these hard times and bring you into his presence, then those, that valley of tears will become a place of springs. You can actually transform your circumstances. And, and, and see them in a whole new light. Something that would brought mourning and weeping and death. The valley of Baca becomes a place of life-giving springs. Refreshing water. It says the early rain also covers it with pools. And then I love what it says in verse 7. This is one of the most important principles to understand in the Christian life. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. The way that God has organized the journey is that he has designed it in such a way that we go from strength to strength. And then we go from strength to strength until ultimately we appear before the Lord. Now I had this misunderstanding in my Christian life that I was just supposed to go from strength. There's a huge difference of going from strength And going from strength to strength. I thought that if I prayed the right kind of prayer. Or got myself disciplined in the right sort of way. Or if I had some sort of spiritual breakthrough at some sort of special service. That all of a sudden I would finally get the strength. And that based on this anointing or this blessing or this outpouring. That I would permanently be able to set it on autopilot. And just cruise and cruise control through the Christian life. That is not how God designed it. He has designed the Christian life for us to c- continually trust him and rely on his strength. So we go from strength, and that gives us enough strength to get to the next point, where guess what we've got to do again? Rely on his strength again, and then again, and then again, and then again, until the moment where we close our eyes on this earth and open our eyes in the presence of our heavenly Father, we will have spent all of our life going from strength. To strength. It is a process of continually trusting in the Lord. He doesn't give us all of the strength all at once. Remember, remember how even how we're supposed to rely on God for nourishment and provision? It's Lord, give us today our daily bread. Not give me a pantry full for the week, not give me a warehouse full for the next decade. It's, It's daily bread, it's daily strength to strength, continually relying. On him, on his strength. And I love the promise, the guarantee. Each one appears before God in Zion. We will get there. Not because of our faithfulness, but because of God's faithfulness. Not because of our commitment to him, but because of his commitment to us. The pilgrims will successfully make it. And we will successfully enter into the presence of God by his Grace. And so the person who is trusting in Jesus Christ and has had their soul satisfied, they are a person of radical endurance and patience and joy in the midst of suffering because they are relying on God's strength. And notice how in verse 8 he says, O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. So the psalmist himself is, you can tell, He's in the valley of Baca right now. He's crying out to God. He feels weak. He is asking God for strength. Maybe you're here right now. And you are, you are on the brink of something very difficult. You are facing a, an insurmountable challenge as it relates to your finances or to your, or to your family or to your work. And you need to cry out to God like the psalmist does here. And don't expect strength to sort of carry you through for the next several days. Count on strength to get you through the next hour and the next day and the next week and the next season. Because we are called to rely on His strength. Then after the psalmist utters this prayer, there's another selah. That's the end of the, of the second stanza. And then the third stanza says, behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. Here's the third characteristic. A person who is totally satisfied in Jesus Christ is longing for his presence, relying on his strength. And thirdly, trusting in God's goodness. Trusting in God's goodness. The last blessing of verse 12 says, blessed are those who trust in you. Verse 11 says, no good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Verse 9 is a, a, a prayer for the king, the anointed one. That's, that's, the, that's the king. Look on the face of your anointed. And then in verse 10 he says, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand Elsewhere. There is no comparison. To be in God's presence for one day, for one 24 hour period, is better than a thousand in any other place. Nothing compares. Complete contentment. If I have the Lord, then I have everything that I need and everything that I want. And speaking from experience, the sons of Korah say, I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. Rather be a doorkeeper. You know, it'd be interesting for the sons of Korah to be in a conversation. You know, I get asked all the time, what do you do for a living? And tell people, I'm a pastor. That creates some interesting conversations. Right off the bat. But you know these sons of Korah you know what, what do you do for a living well you know what I'm a levite I'm a, you know I'm am a descendant of uh, of Levi Oh well, that's amazing do you get to help the priests with the sacrifices uh, no that's another group of levites that get to do that How about how about organizing all of the utensils and making sure the purification process is all in place are you in Oh uh, no that's a, that's another group of levites as well How about the ceremonial washings and are you in gate? Nope no nope, that's another that's another those are my cousins um, so what do you do? What do you, well, I, um, I stand at the door. Conversation over. It, it's, it's not a real uh, glamorous position. It's an honorable position. No doubt to be able to do anything in the, in the temple courts at the tabernacle was a distinct honor but there was there was no fame no one was walking away from the worship service at the temple and saying oh man those doorkeepers were really on it today but they would rather stand at the door you know what's incredible out here at harvest we talk a lot about worship walk work when people ask us what does it mean to be a disciple of jesus christ we use those three words you know someone who worships jesus Someone who walks with him and someone who uses their gifts to work in, in, the, in his service. And Psalm 84 is the outline is worship, walk, work. My heart and my flesh sing for joy in the presence of God, that's worship. My heart is, is set on pilgrimage. The highways of Zion are here, that's walk. And then to be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord, that's that's work. Loved ones, I'm not even lying when I'm telling you this, that we got the keys to this building. 81 hours ago and there was a literal army of people that around the clock with the heart of a doorkeeper have been scrambling around this place with a huge smile on their face serving the Lord and listen they're here right now but you don't know who they are And you probably will never know what they did or how many hours they did or how they baked in the sun to try to get the landscaping to be uh, presentable. All of these things that were done for the glory of God and no glory to them. We have the most amazing servants in this church. I'm not sure why there isn't anyone clapping right now to show at least some appreciation. And that, listen, that, there's so much freedom in that. Not trying to climb the ladder, not trying to be noticed, not trying to, impre- not trying to have that position where you are being recognized or sought after or appreciated. But to simply know that God is watching me while I'm watching this door. And that is good enough for me. He'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. All the people who lie and cheat and steal and pursue afterworldly pursuits with these glorious palatial tents that they live in. And, and he says, I'd rather be standing outside the door than to be right in the center of the most luxurious room in some fancy tent. If that meant that I would turn my back on God and be in a tent of wickedness. Verse 11, he says, The Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. He's a sun and a shield. He's the sun up above us and he's the shield all around us. And when the, when the sun is out, we not only see the sun, but we're also able to see everything else around us. And, and when we have God in our life, we see our whole life. We've been groping around in the darkness, but then the sun rises, and all of a sudden, so much of life makes sense. And that's how we survive in the Valley of Baca, the Valley of Weeping, because the sun is illuminating us and guiding us, and the shield is protecting us from giving in to the despair and the discouragement that That's trying to defeat us. He's a son and a shield. And he doesn't withhold any good thing. Jesus said in Matthew 7 that God is a good father who knows how to give good gifts to his children. James chapter 1 says every good and perfect gift comes from him. Romans 8.28 says that God causes all things to come together for the good of those who love him. God can't help but do good to his children. But we so often, like young children who want our parents to do something for us that we think is good, like making us stay up late or drink half a dozen Coca-Colas or whatever it may be, can sometimes be frustrated with our parent, can't we? Because we think, but this is good. But it would be unloving for a parent to simply give a child everything that the child thinks is good. But the child doesn't always understand And we don't always understand. Believe me, there's lots of good things that I'm asking for on a regular basis for myself and for people who are very dear to me. But I have to trust and believe, just like it says, to trust. Blessed is the one who trusts in you. There are some times where you are able to taste that the Lord is good. And we're experiencing that right now. Being right right here right now, I mean, oh my goodness. Praise the Lord. Taste and see that the Lord is good. There are times where we taste that the Lord is good, and there are other times where we trust that the Lord is good. Because what we're tasting right now is quite bitter. But blessed is the person who when when they see, and it's right before their eyes, the goodness of God, blessed is that person, but how much more is the person blessed even when they can't see it? They are still trusting. How can we know that God is trustworthy? How can we know that he does have our our best at heart? How do we know that his intention is indeed to do us good? Well, we need to look no further than the greatest good gift that he ever gave. The gift of his son, Jesus Christ. And as you read through Psalm 84, Jesus Christ keeps coming up. I mean, in in, in verse 1, look at it. it says, says, how lovely is your dwelling place. Jesus came from the dwelling place of God. And John 1 says that he came and dwelt among us. He came from the dwelling place of God so that God could dwell among us. Us. In verse 6, the valley of Baca, Jesus went through his own valley of tears in the garden of Gethsemane when he contemplated what it would mean for him to take on the sins of the world, your sin and mine, to suffer and die as a propitiation, to bear the punishment, to, to bear and take away the wrath of God, the anger of God, the justice of God towards us and our sin. Christ went through the valley of tears. And his valley of tears became a pool of springs, didn't it? The life-giving, living water of the gospel was made possible through the tears that Christ cried in Gethsemane. Verse 10, a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I mean, we get to go to God's courts and we're going to be there longer than a day, amen? Amen. We are going to spend all of eternity in the presence of God, dwelling in His midst for His glory. And loved ones, He has made us something far greater than doorkeepers. He has made us citizens of His kingdom and sons and daughters in His family. And that is why, in serving with humility, we can do the job of a doorkeeper. Because what we do does not define who we are. Our identity is not tied up in how important our role or position is or how much prestige we might have. Our identity is tied up in the fact that God loves me and died for me and has made a place for me in heaven. And because that is true, I'll do what I'll stand at the door. I'll do whatever it takes because Jesus Christ has made a way for me to enter through that door and pass the out into the holy place and, and through the curtain into the holy of holies, the very presence of God. Because if we have that then we don't need anything else. If we've experienced that in our soul then our soul is satisfied. In the 1940s a, a pastor who had spent a number of years ministering here in the Toronto area was on a train ride from Chicago to Texas and he had a pad and paper and During the overnight train ride, he wrote a book called The Pursuit of God. The pastor's name was A.W. Tozer. And at at the close of one of the early chapters, this is what A.W. Tozer says about the soul that has been satisfied. The Psalm 84 kind of life. He says, the man or the woman who who has God for his treasure has all things in one. Many ordinary treasures may be denied him. Or if he is allowed to have them, the enjoyment of them will be so tempered that they will never be necessary to his happiness. Or if he must see them go one after one, he will scarcely feel a sense of loss for having the source of all things he has in one. All satisfaction, all pleasure, all delight. Whatever he may lose, he has actually lost nothing, for now he has it all in one, and he has it purely, legitimately, and forever. And then he follows up such a profound and powerful statement of what it means to be satisfied in God with this humble prayer of contrition, a, a humble request to, to ask God to make him into the man that he just described. He says, O oh Lord... I have tasted thy goodness, and it has both satisfied me and made me thirsty for more. I am painfully conscious of my need for further grace. I am ashamed of my lack of desire. O God, the triune God, I want to want thee. I long to be filled with longing. I thirst to be made thirsty still. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we love you. We are satisfied in you, but we long for more of you. And Heavenly Father, if we are going to steward what you have given us here and entrusted to us here right now, Lord, we must make sure that our focus is not on a person or a preacher or a program, but that our our focus is completely on your presence, that we would be longing for your presence and relying on your strength and trusting in your goodness. God, we're thankful for your son, Jesus Christ. We pray right now in his name and by your spirit that you would unite our hearts to love you and to fear you and to serve you. Father, we want to want you. We long to long for you. We thirst to be made more thirsty still. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. this has been an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Brampton, Ontario for more information about our church or to contact us please visit harvestbrampton.ca